I'm back. Uh, so Sean Fitzgibbon's Kickstarter is still going. That goes until October 31st. It's like midnight, November 1st. Um, it's last week's guest. Definitely listen to the episode if you haven't. It's a, a true story about the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs. He put it up on Kickstarter October 1st. Uh, the project funded in the first day. Like it was super fast. Um, so it's definitely going to happen. I think like the lowest tier, you can do like a dollar or $5 support. And, but, uh, there's some tiers in there that have original artwork by him. Um, the, he's passed his initial three like funding goals. So, uh, like now tier three and up get like a slip case cover for the book as well. It's going to be amazing. I'm super excited about it. So definitely, um, Kickstarter, if you don't know how to do Kickstarter, you haven't done it, this would be the perfect first project. Find a friend who's backed something on Kickstarter. DM me on Instagram. I don't care. I'll help you through it. Uh, but Sean Fitzgibbon, what follows is true. Crescent Hotel, last week's guest, uh, and your chance to get your hands on on something cool. Every single panel of this graphic novel is hand-painted. It's crazy. Mind-blowing. Um, okay, before I forget, let's thank our patrons on Patreon. Um, you too can be a patron. For as little as a dollar a month, this money goes a long way. All my bills just came due for the show, right? So the website, the podcast hosting platform, equipment, um, like some monthly fees that come up with different things. Like So it goes a long way to just covering the cost of the show. Really appreciate everybody who does it now. But you can go to patreon.com forward slash look what I did. And you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. So that'd be great. Um, but thanks to our top patrons. Kathy, Cindy, Brian, Chelsea, Jesse, Travis, Tyler, and Brian. Thank you guys. Thank you, Rails, who supports as well. Really appreciate it. Also, follow on Instagram. Um, it's LWID Project on Instagram, or you can find us, Look What I Did, not the band, the podcast, on Facebook as well. And uh, I post there occasionally, trying to get better at it. I need a social media intern. If you're interested in helping me with social media, hit me up. Um, that would be fantastic. Uh, <laughs> due to COVID, we are down to one, an army of one. Um, and then, yeah, why don't you go ahead and rate and review on iTunes? goes a long way when people are looking for new podcasts to listen to. Rocking a five-star review from everybody who's done it, I deeply appreciate that that's amazing to me just mind-blowing um but yeah if, you, if you'd rate and review on itunes that'd be fantastic as well so this week we have one of six speleo physicists in the world is on the show uh matt and i knew each other a really long time ago it's one of those things where he just kind of showed up in my facebook feed is like people you might know and i was like hey, man this is one of like the smartest human beings i ever met um i wonder what he's up to and so we just kind of connected and we're chatting a little bit and uh, I was correct. He is one of the smartest human beings I've ever met. Uh, very just mentally intimidating to sit across the table from this guy. But uh, he's done so much. It's super cool. It's a fun conversation. If you love caves, if you don't really care about caves, um, it, it's just an interesting conversation. It covers like camping underground, uh, rock climbing. Like, there's just a lot and, and it was just fun to catch up with him. Um, and just a world that I don't know anything about, which you will quickly, quickly find out. Uh, <laughs> I need to quit having scientists because all it does is showcase how little I know. Um, I think without further ado, Matt Covington. Enjoy.
All right. So let's start with who you are and what you do. And this is one of the ones where I honestly don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like I kind of know, but I've been making it up when I tell people. Yeah. So I'm Matt Covington. I'm a professor at the University of Arkansas in the geosciences department. Um, I'm also a caver and explorer. Um, the, the fields of science that I study are mostly hydrogeology, which is like water and rocks interacting together and geomorphology, which is basically the science of landscapes and how they form and evolve over time. Um, I also find myself working a fair bit around glaciers, particularly in caves and glaciers. A lot of my work has to do with caves. Right. Because the title I read was Speleologist. 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 Yeah, Speleologist is a cave scientist. So Gotcha. Um, yeah, speleology is cave science. And, and most of what I do somehow relates to caves. Um, my, my career path was really pretty unusual in that uh, as an undergrad, I was a physics, physics, I got two degrees, one in physics and one in philosophy. Right. And, um, I went to grad school in physics and in astrophysics and, and got a PhD in theoretical astrophysics and then figured out that really this I was. This conversation is going to be very difficult for me to hold up my end. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> nah. Uh, we can talk <laughs> I about, sold t-shirts talk about for caves. a while. <laughs> so. Basically, I you know I was spending a month or more every year on caving expeditions, and I just figured out you know I'm more I'm more interested in caves, um, so why am I not studying caves? And and you know basically, as I was finishing my PhD studying galaxy mergers, it was like, no, I I should actually be studying caves. So I finished up the PhD and switched fields, and managed to convert myself into a geologist. There's something like almost poetic about I'm looking at the stars and the heavens and then I'm just going to turn to the depths of the earth. Dark, like, yeah, like, yeah. like what's this? I ran away from the sky and yeah, that, that's definitely something I've thought about. It, there's within physics, astronomy, astrophysics is referred to as the dark side um, sometimes. And, and I like went from the dark side to the darker side <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> the bowels of the earth. What I like, so I, I, man, I've known, or we knew each other a long, long time ago. I mean, like we were discussing this earlier when you got here, it's been, but I was probably 12, right? Like I'm a teenager maybe. And you were in, cause I was thinking about when I saw what you did, I was like, well, he's been into caves his whole life. Cause I remember literally sitting around and you'd be like, yeah, there's this cave that you have to repel into. I'm like, I want to go do that one day, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so to see like this passion from, you know, a pretty young age, like actually manifested itself in it. Am I right in saying that you're one of six speleologists in the world? Well, no, there are it's many the interwebs. There thing. are many speleologists. Okay. So there are two, there are two things. You're Probably one of six good ones. What you saw no. was, was <laughs> speleophysicist. Oh, so that's clearly had too many syllables for me to remember. That's, uh, so speleologist is someone who studies caves, which I am. Um, but sometimes I use the term speleophysicist physics for what I do, because most of the work that I do basically takes my mathematical skill set from physics right. and applies it to trying to understand processes that form caves. Um, so 
basically taking physics and chemistry and, and trying to really understand the processes that are going on inside of caves. It's easy eighth grade science, right? <laughs> water comes in and it kind of like digs some stuff out and then there's a hole in a cave and the water went away. I think that was, I solved it. That, that's the basic <laughs> idea. It's, well, it's a basic idea. But I really actually had this question. I was like, so what, like, it feels like something we should know, right? Like in my head, it's like, well, the cave form, cause water went through here or something separated, right? A, a, I don't know enough to talk about this at all, but like, you know, plates move or shift happens. Um, so are you, I get the question that came to mind is like, are you looking backwards at how this happened? Or are you sometimes looking forward what's going to happen next? Cause I think both those are really interesting questions. And the second one actually is a little more, cause every time I end up in a cave, I'm like, when does the shape of this thing change? Cause it got to this, so when does it cave in or something else? Right, occur, right, right. Like what's next becomes my question. Yeah. So so most of my work is on the f the fundamentals of the processes. So you could use like if you understand the processes, you could use that to think back in time what was what was going on with this particular cave in the past. You can also use understanding of the processes to try to project forward. So once you understand the processes. You can go backwards or forwards. Right, in time. you can just move that up and down um, the timeline, and you know, the, one of the so we do understand the basic processes that form caves. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really more the details that that we don't understand. What's um, the biggest misconception that like the layman, we'll say me, has about cave formation? Like, is there something where it's like, I mean, my rudimentary explanation, as much as it was kind of a joke, is real, right? Like, I assume water went through there and formed the thing, but. Yeah, um, I don't know that I run into any particular common misconception about, the, I think most people don't have much conception beyond, well, probably water has something to do with it. Um, what, what it really is though, is they, they tend to form in rocks that are, that dissolve very easily right. in natural water. So when you get a crack in the rock and the water starts flowing through there, if the water can dissolve that rocks, like you know, like dissolving salt. There's, in fact, caves form in, in salt and rock salt when, when you get it on the surface. Right. Um, then that's able to make that flow path bigger and bigger and bigger over time. Um, and since it's all dissolved in the water, it doesn't like plug up anywhere. You know, if you're right. removing dirt through a crack, it might plug it up. Right. But because it actually goes into the water, the water can, can carry it away can pretty easily. It. That's interesting. And so it's really like, so the water foundationally, or what I hear is, yeah, the water's doing the work. It's the surface the water's working on to some extent, right? Like if you have salt, that's going to move easily. But if that salt is laying over a harder stone in any area, obviously that's going to change. I would, I'm literally making this up. Yeah. But I'm thinking that as the water goes through the soft, easy stuff and hits the harder surface, it's going to, that's going to, should have an opposite force somewhere else and potentially like the cave is going to shift a little right, like away from that hard rock into the softer material. Like, does that make sense? Like, yeah. So if it's soft material all around, it equally wears until it hits something hard and then it would push. Yeah, for sure. It does that. And, and you can see that in the shapes of cave passages. So, um, and I wish I could, could make a drawing, but I know I need like a whiteboard in a, in a <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, I joke with my students all the time that in order to think properly, I need the fumes from the marker, from right. the marker board <laughs> that like gets my brain juices flowing. Right. But, um, so Which may not be a joke because <laughs> right now we'll see how this conversation goes. <laughs> yeah. So if you have a rock that is just 
uniform like it's it's the same throughout and you start forming a cave passage through that it will make a nice circular like a tube right um because it just erodes evenly everywhere but if you have some rocks that don't dissolve as easily or, or a bit harder um then it can it can it'll like flatten out along that or it might if it's going down through the rock it might stop at that level and form a, a passage specifically at that hard layer where the cave the cave might grow really big at that layer right um, so, you know, a, a lot of the work that I do relates to, to trying to understand the rates at which the caves form, like how quickly they're, they're forming. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, and one of the cool things that I've found, um, I'll, I'll give just a quick primer on, on how this works. So I, I said that the rock dissolves in the, in the water. Right. Um, what's actually doing the dissolving is carbon dioxide that's in the water. So carbon dioxide dissolves in the water and makes it acidic, just like a, a Coke is acidic. Right. And that acid can attack certain types of rock like limestone, um, which is what we have here in most of Northwest Arkansas. Um, and so it's really CO2 that's developing the cave. CO2 dissolved in the water is what causes the caves to develop. And one of the things that we've discovered by looking at how CO2 changes in cave waters over time is that the, the airflow that flows through caves when they get big and start get, you, you get um, consistent winds that right. will blow through a large cave system. And that seems to um, importantly impact the rates. So, uh, let me see if I can explain it in, in, in a simple way, but basically <laughs> pretend like you're explaining it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the water tends to have pretty high levels of CO2 in it and the outside air has much lower levels of CO2. Right. And so if you keep the cave isolated away from the atmosphere, it will maintain, it'll be much more acidic. It'll form more rapidly. But as soon as you start letting a whole bunch of air blow through the cave, um, those rates decrease because the, the water gets rid of its CO2, just like a Coke does when you open right. it up. Yeah. It dumps all that CO2 out because it's much more than what's in the atmosphere. Right. Much higher concentration. So the caves seem to be doing that as well. And we've even found some cases where uh, when the cave is actively forming depends on whether which direction the wind in the cave is blowing. When it's going one way, the CO2 is high. When it's going the other way, the CO2 is low. And so you get this seasonal pattern in the rates at which the cave is eroding that's completely driven by like temperature changes on the surface, which is not what uh, I would have guessed when I started looking at this problem. Normally, you th when you think about changes in nature, you think about flood events. Right. And things like, you know, like you have this big flood and it's eroding the, the cave, it's eroding the stream channel, whatever. But what we found in this case uh, and in a few of the cases we've looked at is it it doesn't seem floods aren't really all that important. It's it's like which what's They've the got air this ebb and flow? What's, what's the, the air, air doing? doing? That's nuts. Yeah, um, you would never think about placing those two things. That's yeah. Well, and that's what I was gonna. <clears throat> the question that came to mind is, and there may not be. Like, is there an application to your field of study, or is it like pursuit of knowledge, which is yeah, totally valid as yeah, well. So, right? but, um. There are definitely applications. Most of the work that I do is 
more basic research, just fundamentally motivated by trying to understand things. Right. Curiosity, essentially. Um, but when trying to understand development of caves, for example, is important uh, because in places like Northwest Arkansas, where you have this process going on, in the groundwater, in the ground, you have caves running all through our aquifers. We have right. caves. And um, because of that, when water flows through a cave, it flows quickly. It doesn't filter very much, whatever gets put in. So if you have some sort of spill or if you have um, a leaky septic tank or something like that, that just passes quickly through the ground and ends up in a spring somewhere. Right. And um, so trying to better understand what types of patterns of caves will develop in the subsurface and in what kinds of settings is pretty important in terms of managing our water resources and water quality. So like Can, what, so knowing the like geological makeup, tell me if I'm using a word mm -hmm. wrong, but like, right. Like the ground makeup and where a spill happens can you potentially predict where that outcome of that or put, like these spots may be where a spring would be coming out from this so, cave so end? You, you wouldn't be able to, I mean, g given what we know now, you wouldn't be able to really fully predict. But if you had enough information on the geology, um, you know, how what types of rocks were there and how they're oriented and maybe what are the typical um, fracture patterns that you have in the rock, you could make some pretty educated guesses as to where that contaminant might go if it made it into the subsurface. But the the really um, the 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 gold standard for trying to answer that question is is using a fluorescent dye, which is one of the and main. Just follow it. Like, yeah, you like you put it in and you see where it goes. Yeah, and you can detect it and it's not really predict anything. Low, just follow it. I could do that. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, you could. You could. <laughs> Literally, the, my dog might be the, able to. The do hard that. part of that is not making a or not making a mess and getting the dye all right? over yeah, you, yeah, yeah, or, or not contaminating, you know, your detectors with the dye that you used to not put in. Not making the problem worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that that's that's the way people, um, in Actually a specific setting, like will try to prove where is the water going is is they put dye in the subsurface. There's a a, a common saying among karst scientists. Karst is a terrain where caves develop. Okay. Um, but, Thank but, you for defining that. But That'll the, be important. Go forward. <laughs> but uh, the, the the saying is die, don't lie. And, uh, you know, if you want to know the truth about what's going on on the subsurface, you put in some dye and you see what it says. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, and then you've traveled internationally for this. I, once again, we kind of talked about that a little bit too. Um, was that studying like cave formations in other countries. You also say you do glacier work and I know some of where you were was seems like colder regions. Um, was that glacier related or was that cave related? And it, it's a bit of a mix. So I, before I was a cave scientist, when I was still a physicist, I did a lot of caving just for fun. So I would go on a month long expedition to Mexico or Peru or China or Indonesia or somewhere like that. We should pause. Hold on. So you're like a serious caver. We're not talking like, oh, I went to this cave for the weekend. Like these are long, long trips to yeah, yeah, like, like mountaineering trips yeah, in reverse. So the cave exactly. So the, the sort of caving that 
I'm involved in is pretty analogous to Himalayan mountaineering of the caving world. Um, but it's not like just going to the top of Everest. It's more like being the first to go to the top of Everest. So it's, it's like Himalayan mountaineering was, you know, 50 That's years so ago cool. where there was still a lot of first ascents to be made. So have so, you gotten to make first descents? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so most of the expedition caving I've done is, is pure exploration. You know, we're, we're exploring and mapping. We don't know what we're going to find. We're working in places um, a lot of the caving I like to do is in places that have very deep vertical caves. So it's, it's sort of like mountaineering in reverse right, where you're right. going, you're going down ropes, a rope after rope. Um, some of these caves, um, one, one we were exploring in Mexico is a little over 1200 meters deep. So a, a little like around 4,000 feet, almost 4,000 yeah. feet. Um, and is there any, there, is there atmospheric issues at that point? Like, are you facing anything? At no, you have feet? enough. You have enough air circulation um, because of the airflow through right, cave yeah. systems that it keeps the air fresh for the most part. Um, so you don't you don't have to worry about that. But yeah, for this, so this cave is a little over four thousand feet deep, and and that's the that's the elevation difference between right. the highest point and the lowest point in the cave. Um, not necessarily the distance traveled to get there. Yeah, the distance traveled is is let's see if I can think in miles. It's something like three or four miles. Yeah, but we probably had also about three or four miles worth of rope rigged in the cave in mm -hmm. order to reach the bottom. At that particular cave, um, at the bottom, the cave was underwater. So then we were diving at the bottom of this cave um, to continue exploration is that full scuba gear then at yeah, that point yeah um so so yeah s serious caving no yeah the hardcore how do you know when you get to the end i mean like is there really just like oh well you've explored every like f whatever you call fracture uh, offshoot or is it like well this is as far as we can go now yeah it's you know it's a little bit of a mix it's it's somewhat as you know how motivated you are some of it is is what kind of tools do you have available to you and you know over time the technology has gotten better so right uh, particularly for underground climbing was like you're in the cave and you can see a passageway up high somewhere and you have to climb to get up to it using something like rock climbing techniques right the the techniques for that have gotten way better and and so suddenly a lot of passages are accessible that people before would have just looked at and said, uh, it's like, it's do. like way too hard to get up there. Well, what do you do? Like, and this may be dumb, but you get to a point where like you literally physically can't get farther, but you also can see that it continues and it could open up again. Right? Like, yeah. So it depends. It depends. Um, so, you know, there are, are often places where it gets too tight. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a cave that has a lot of airflow, that you know often you're following the air to right. figure out where there's more cave um, you might actually spend quite a bit of time digging to enlarge a place like that i don't um, know if it counts as discovery if you're making your own cave mat i'm just going to point that out like <laughs> well i dug it four feet farther so i'm going to name it after me now you can't add mountaintop and be like i summited everest is everest <laughs> yeah i mean cave exploration involves a fair bit of, of digging destruction <laughs> yeah but you know it's it's typically like you're digging through, you know, a short section, a few mm. feet, and then it opens up again. So it's right. it's not like you're making, it's not like you're mining a cave, right? But it's not that uncommon for a big cave to come to a place that's just too tight for us to get through, 
or maybe it's too tight for most of the team to get through and it's not really safe to have just like right one, one or two, or two other people, people get working through. on the other side um i've seen so, descent i know all about caving i know it's a bad idea yeah. i shouldn't go that's <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a documentary i'm pretty sure that's yeah <laughs> it's pretty realistic that's that's more or less what the expeditions are like there's you know there's a lot of mercy killings and are there any caving movies that are real or like somewhat realistic um I can't even think of a caving movie right now. I can think of a lot of climbing movies. There's the descent. There's, you know, a lot of them have, mon- most of them have monsters. Yeah, but I feel like there's got to be like, surely somebody made a caving movie that's not time travel because there was that one that was actually kind of cool. Not horror. Somebody did like, I'm not sure. The closest thing is Daylight with Sylvester Stallone, I think, when he's in the tunnel. And the- <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't think of an example. I mean, there are documentaries about right. caving. How come nobody's but, made a good feature film about... There's all kinds of ones about climbing. There yeah, has to be a good caving yeah, story. I mean, there are plenty of good caving stories. I think this is this is something that's discussed a fair bit among cavers. Like, why is it not as appealing to the public? Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's, there's, there's at least one theory that it's just not like... Uh, it's just not sexy enough. It's like not visually stunning enough. Uh, you know, when you have a person standing at the top of you Everest, you know, view. you have this massive view and they're clearly up on the top and they're triumphant. Yeah, when someone's at the bottom of the say, deepest like, cave in the world, it's like, look at this, you know, muddy hole in the floor. That's the deepest place of the deepest cave in the world. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. But I mean, like deep ocean documentaries do well and there's not like vistas there necessarily. And there's got to be ecosystems of some kind in these caves right yeah like yeah so there's stuff to see yeah i mean i i think there could be a, a good caving movie but i don't and, and maybe there is one we just need the story i don't know know of it um we've seen enough dr- i mean even if it's just like people almost dying right and then they're saved something like you just need the drama to pull you through the story yeah i mean it would that. be it would be easy to make we'll talk to chase Okay. Yeah. We're like Chase, we need to make a caving movie. That's a. <laughs> we'll bring this podcast full circle and get past there guests we on. We'll there like, we go. This is an untapped market, man. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's done this. I was just curious. That's I've way sidetracked us off the. I just figured you would know if there was a good caving movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, I may, I may be missing something, but I'm not aware of one. What's the best documentary? Um. Not starring you. No. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. So, I mean, I there was um there've been a couple of good ones. There was one that really hooked me when I was a teenager. There was a National Geographic documentary. I can't remember what it was called. Um, but they go they go mostly to caves in the US. They go to a bunch of different caves right. and, and talk about them. They they go to Lechuguia Cave, which talk about visually stunning, spectacular place. Um that's a cave in New Mexico that many people consider to be the most beautiful cave in the world. And, um, where's that next to it's, it's in Carlsbad national park. Okay. So it's, that's the, that that's related to Carlsbad. uh, Carlsbad is that has the cave where the like bats fly out Mm -hmm. counterclockwise or whatever. Yeah. You get like a spiral of bats in the, in the entrance when they fly out at night. What state has the biggest cave system? That would be Kentucky, which is the longest cave system in the world. Okay. It's, they just recently updated the length of it because it's still being explored. Um, it's, uh, I want to say it was around 420 miles. It's over 400 miles. That's crazy. Um, 
And it, it, you know, it's one of those things you were talking about when does a cave end? You know, a cave like Mammoth Cave is basically a giant maze. And it's really easy to overlook something, you know, some little side passage or and and so even when you think you've explored all of a cave, you you know, someone else may come back and just catch something that you missed. Yeah, cuz I mean And so it, it it's one of those things that you never really know when you're done. You just you right. at some point you decide uh I've had enough of this. I'm going to move on to something else. Well, that may go back to the mountain thing, right? Like there's a finite literal point of like, okay, that's the highest elevation. Like I, this is the end of the thing. Caving to your point, you don't know for sure. It's, and in 30 years, it won't have been true anyway in some cases, right? Like, yeah, yeah. No, that's totally the case. So like with Everest, you know, the, the tallest mountain in the world is clear. We know which one it is. It's that one. Yeah. We're going to try to get to the top. But with the, so there's a lot of push among cavers to find the deepest cave in the world. And the, the weird thing is, is even if we found it, we'll never really know. Right. And in the time that the I've been... The deepest cave for now. <laughs> yeah. In the time that I've been actively caving, maybe even just since I've been expedition caving, which is roughly the last 20 years, uh, the deepest cave in the world has changed three or four times. Oh, wow. It just recently changed. Um, there was there was one that held the record for quite a while, um, but then just maybe a year and a half, two years ago, found another one. That's well, it took you deeper. like ten years to dig your cave a little deeper, so you can <laughs> say it was yours. That's uh, now that I know how this world works, it's just a race to the bottom. <laughs> but that is weird because caves, like I had never thought about this, but like mountains really technically are shrinking, right? Like very slowly. Well, some of them are, I mean, the, the Himalayas are uplifting. Are they? Yeah, they're still actively uplifting. talking out loud. I mean, so, so. so so they're uplifting and they're being eroded at the same time. And, and depending on the setting, one of those two things might be faster. So they may either be uplifting faster or they might You're be eroding. Destroying everything I already don't know about <laughs> so, geology. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't form mountains, right? If they couldn't at least sometimes be uplifting faster than they just thought new ones were forming somewhere at some point somehow yeah. and old ones shrank. That was my eighth grade understanding of mountain ranges <laughs> i should have read more books <laughs> uh no yeah so like that's interesting to me that like I, i've never thought of caves as this like active right it's a thing you discover that's been there for a long time but it's really like an active system that's constantly evolving and changing which is really cool right because it has this kind of like never-ending point that you can constantly chase like you're never going to get to the end of it which yeah, I mean, you you you, you never really know if you right. have I explored it all or not. Which for an explorer is great because it, like the whole idea is is like chasing the unknown. Yeah, and so you don't have to worry about uh, about so, like running out of things. Do you to ever do. revisit caves you've done expeditions in just to see if, or do you kind of know like we didn't have time to go this way, so we're gonna come back sometime and we're gonna go down to the right. Yeah, some of both. So. Um, you know, sometimes you just go back to a cave that was explored 20, 30 years ago because things have changed a lot and maybe we're a little more desperate now than they were then. Like it was easier to find new caves than new right. passages. <laughs> and um, and a lot of times you can find stuff that way. Um, but, you know, also, especially on the big expeditions, we tend to leave stuff where it looks like it continues, but we just don't have the resources or the time to continue, to continue. that at that point. Right. And, you know, it might get left for a few years or for a few decades. Um, we went 
one of one of the cooler caving trips I've been on was in a cave in Mexico called Rio Iglesia, which at one point was the deepest cave in in the Americas, um, and no one had been able to make it to the bottom of the cave since the uh, team of Canadians bottomed it and made it the deepest cave in, in the Americas. It was like one trip where they went over a period of a couple of weeks and explored right. to the bottom of this cave. And um, there was a place fairly far up in the cave that just filled with sand and no one or, or water and no one had ever been able to get through there again. But we went back and that was open. And we went back to the bottom of the cave where they had gone before and at the very bottom of the cave, they had also been blocked by a plug of sand. But when we got down there, there was a crawl in the sand, but air was blowing out of it. And uh, I think we did have to dig in the sand just a little bit, but but it was it was basically open and we just went through. And we continued on and we connected into another nearby cave system and, and made this big cave connection. That's cool. Um, so it was, you know, it was, and that was, I think it was a 40 year gap between wow. the, the first explorers and when we were there. So does the community share or do you kind of keep your stuff to your, like it's science, it's, right? It's, so like, it's some of both. So there, there is a fair bit of secrecy, but you know, people, especially big caves like that tend to, people are, are publishing articles about them and, right. and making the maps available. Uh, so we had the articles that were written by this Canadian team and, uh, there was still some like some artifacts and things from the Canadians. There was there was a mention in the article, just a couple of lines about some sort of incident in the camp with the stove involving the stove and the wetsuit. Right. So one of them, the wet like they had caught their wetsuit on fire or something, and there were still some of the bits of this Sounds old burnt, like melted wetsuit yeah. in their old camp. Um, the other one of the cooler experiences I've had underground. We, we camped in the same spot where these guys had been camped 40 years before. And some of the, of the leads we wanted to check out and see if they went anywhere based on their map were across the chamber where they had camped. And I started walking across it. And at some point I realized that I'm following a single set of footprints through the sand here. That's and it's like these footprints are 40 years from old. 40 years ago. And it's from one of these guys. It's kind of this famous group of, of cavers from Canada. Yeah. And a lot of the guys went on to do a bunch of cool cave exploration. And I was like, so which one, you know, whose footprints are yeah. these? And were any of these guys alive at this point? Yeah. Or yeah. Some of them were still alive. Did you alive. talk to any of them after um, that? One of them actually sent me a nice email after, or maybe he wrote a letter to the editor. So I wrote an article on that trip. I think there was a letter to the editor to that, that came back from one of the guys who was on that expedition just saying like he really enjoyed reading about that's about so cool though to have that loop of connectivity to that's neat yeah no it was i mean I, i'm standing by beside these 40 foot or 40 year old footprints i was like what what do i do like do i you know normally you try to minimize impact and like right. not you know not track everything up and you know, I was like, do I preserve, like, are these historical? And eventually I decided, no, I walk in his footprints. And so I just sort of, like, carefully one foot in front of the other walked exactly where this guy had That's walked so cool. 40 years prior. It was, it was an eerie experience. Like, like, like try to put myself back yeah. to that time of caving and all the things that were different. I mean, because where else would you be able to do that than... Right, like the, it's uh, just, the, yeah. I, I mean, the moon, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, unless you're going to the moon, I think is the only other option. Like, 
That's crazy. That is really cool. So have you, and not to uh, fluff your ego any, but do you have any like records or exploration? Like, are there things that you've been the first to do in um, that world? Uh, As not, he pulls out a long sheet of paper and reads off. Yeah, like no, not, not really. Not <laughs> really. I mean, um, I've, I've been involved in, exploration of some of the deepest caves in the world but um i you know i don't know that it that anything it really stands out as sort of like a, a record holding thing or anything like that you know one of the things about caving as well is that it's it's very it's very team oriented yeah you're not in, doing it by yourself which in some ways makes it different from from climbing right it, you know it's often a solo pursuit or two people or something like that these big caving expeditions you know, we don't have Sherpas to carry stuff through the right. cave for us. And so, um, you know, it's like a team of 20 or 30 people often and people from all over the world, which also makes it fun because, you know, people converge from, from all over the place. And how long is, cause caves are relatively, or my understanding is are relatively climate controlled, mm -hmm. right? Is that regardless of depth? Yeah. So caves tend to be close to a constant temperature they're no close how far they're close to whatever the average surface temperature is okay but in a very deep cave as you go down just like on the surface as you go down a mountain it gets warmer because of heat like heating of the air as, right. it, as it gets pressurized um the same thing happens in the cave so it gets hotter the farther down you go mm -hmm. That is not what it would have been. So, I mean, and, and it's not sense, like, but. it's not like the heat coming up from the earth, nor in most cases, it's not right. Um, it's not like geothermal heat. It's, it's just the same thing that happens on the surface where it's cold at the top of the mountain and it's warmer down in the valley. Yeah. I guess because I know nothing, I would have assumed that like it got colder, the deeper you went for that same re right? Like my descent. Oh like, yeah. Um, or well, not. Anyway, getting farther away from the sun and from the heat should make it colder, I would assume. But I guess yeah. that's not the and case. And it's not a dramatic difference. But when you're climbing out of a thousand meter deep cave, it's noticeably colder it in the upper parts. It, you know, it's gotcha. three, four, five degrees cooler. So how, so like the 4,000 meter, right? 4,000 4,000 feet. 4,000 feet. The 4,000 foot cave how long is that? Is that like a few days? Is that a week? Most, so to get to the bottom of that cave, to get to the, well, to get to the very end of that cave now, you actually have to do a couple, two underwater sections. Um, but, you know, assuming you already have the diving gear down there and all ready to go, it's, it's something like, three to four days travel to get to the end of the cave from the entrance. Okay. Um, just to get to the first place where you have to dive, which is most of the way to the bottom of the cave. Right. It's um, most people take two or three days. And the reason, so it's about a week, like to go down to the bottom and to come back and up. Come back. It's yeah, about which a week is underground. a crazy amount of time to be underground. Right. And the reason I was asking this is um, like, I do a decent amount of like hiking and camping. Right. And just thinking from, because you said Sherpa, and I was like, oh, that's a really good point. Like, you have to be, the one thing in your favor is climate is not going to, like, super, super hot, super, super cold. So you're not too worried about that, but you still have 
food. I guess shelter is minimal, right? You like, don't you don't need a whole lot of shelter. Um, I mean, we just use sleeping bags and sleeping pads. Yeah. Sometimes we'll have like a little, especially in colder caves, um, a little um, tent of some sort that may be like a regular tent, or it might be just to stop the just breeze. a ceiling. Yeah, yeah, like to trap a little bit of heat. Everybody gets in there; it kind of warms up. Right. Um, but then you're also carrying diving gear potentially yeah. and climbing gear yeah none so of which is so light. so to do like to dive at the bottom of this cave um it when we did that it took us a team of about 20 to 30 people most of the time about a month to be ready for to send two people and to to the dive because you're coming so it's down, a month because you're being your own sure it's a month point, of right? carrying like, stuff into the cave and you know, like getting the ropes rigged and um we actually already had most of the rope rigged, but some of it needed to be replaced right. and like or improved um for carrying heavier loads and so yeah it's, it's like a month of this big team of people hauling food and camping equipment and diving equipment day after day What's I, I mean, and you can't, you know, like you don't normally do, you don't do that for a month in a row. Like you do it for a week or 10 days and then you take maybe a, a week off, off so, for, yeah. you know, well, at least I was going to say, there's got to be a psychological impact because I don't know if you've ever been in a cave or not, but I've been in a cave and, <laughs> but you know, like you'll go for like two hours to devil's den or whatever. And like, it's just dark and you can't make eye contact and you start saying stuff you would never say like out <laughs> in the sun. Like, which is a psychological impact, right? Like that lack of eye contact somehow create, I've always thought like, if you want to know somebody go in a cave because you'll just talk about like the most random stuff <laughs> in a cave, but you have to think a week in the lack of like natural light, like those types of things would start to have some kind of toll a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think it does. I think most of the people who do, do that type of caving though, they don't feel that very strongly, at least by the time they're doing like. You've spent so much time in caves, you're pretty comfortable in that environment. And the idea of being a week or a couple of weeks underground just isn't that intimidating. Um, there, you know, there are, there are stories, I've never been around anyone who was really, this really happened to, but there are stories of, of something called, they call the rapture, which is, I think is effectively a panic attack. Gotcha. So it's some people, when they're first going really deep into a cave like this, like far away from, you know, m multiple days away from the entrance, sort right. of thing, start getting the rapture. And I mean, you just, talking about it makes my heart beat a little faster. They're like just days like, away they're from just like, like nothing really makes them better except uh, let's, let's start going out of the cave. Yeah. Um, so there is certainly a psychological pressure there. Um, I think the bigger limits are, are physical though. Like, right. you know, your feet are often wet all day, every day. Just and like, or like your hands inside your gloves may be wet. And so like one of the biggest limitations really is, is like infections yeah. in, in your hands and your feet and you're not getting UV from well, the no sun. There's no dry out, right? You're like not, at least outside hiking, I can like yeah, I mean, lay you, stuff out on the sun. You tend to dry out and, yeah. in camp at night. But there's like every day, like you get back in, the first thing you do in the morning is like put all your wet clothes Are you drying out in camp at night? How are you doing that? Like, I mean, the environment's so naturally wet. So norm, most people carry a dry set of clothes, um, like like PolyPro. Right, right. That they're going to put on in camp. And, and 
I, I always have a dry pair of socks, uh, which I refer to as my sacred socks. Right, that, like yeah. don't get used except for, you know, in my sleeping bag. Right. And dry um, socks so, are super. But where are you laying the wet stuff, right? Like that's what I'm saying. So, like, so the wet stuff stays that, wet. So it, it drips. Oh, so you just have to change. Yeah. So it drips dry a little bit. If it's really wet, it, it'll drip dry a bit. Right. But yeah, in the morning, um, you you got to put all that stuff back on. That's to me. That's the uh, well. That's the damaging that's thing. That's the then, worst right? part of the day. Yeah, is is getting back into all those like especially the wet socks. Like putting on wet socks that are cold. Yeah, is not a real pleasant thing. Because outside, like you know, I was just in uh, Estes Park, right? And I was trying to do Long's Peak. Failed. I was fourteen hundred feet away from the summit. I was like, nope, done. <laughs> I do not have the skills nor equipment for this thing that somebody did not describe well, but. <laughs> You know, overnight you can take your socks off, hang them out, and they'll be dry the next day. So you're just wearing like, you know, your extra pair. And of course, you bring a couple extra pairs, but you can recycle some of that. So you're carrying eight days worth of new clothing. No, no, or I have new socks. I have, two, I have two sets. Okay. I have my dry camp clothing and I have my clothing I wear during the Oh, day. right. Because you're just putting the wet stuff back on. But that can't be good for on. your feet. No, it's not. Which is one, Which is why that's one of the limitations for how long you can stay underground. I mean, if you, if it got bad, you could hang out and camp for a few days, but then you're sitting there using food and fuel yeah. and other resources that somebody has to carry in the cave. Or just bring nine pairs of socks or something, but your shoes are still wet and you're still, you still have a bunch of yeah. issues. Again, again I mean, you don't have much you. space to bring personal stuff. Well, that's what I was going to say is like, because you're you mostly are, carrying like group things, food and yeah, you're doing as light as you can do to get the important, the climbing equipment, scuba equipment, food. Yeah. No, normally my personal stuff fits into uh, a gallon container. Oh, wow. I'm down to eight and a half pounds. So I'm close. I mean, I could probably compress it down to a gallon. Yeah. I mean, no normally my personal stuff is just like a set of poly pro top and bottom. Yeah. A pair of socks. Sleeping bag. Uh, some extra batteries. Yeah. and I would think a lot of extra batteries. Sleeping bags stay. So um, the sleeping bags we carry in and we, we like uh, equip each camp. So every oh, camp has so a set like, of like four sleeping bags or eight sleeping gotcha. bags, however many spaces okay. you have, and pads. So you're not carrying all the stuff from start to mm -hmm. end. No. To point, so you've got to get it in there and get it gotcha. set up. But okay. once it's there... You're typically you're you're carrying just a little bit of personal stuff, which is mostly your dry clothes for camp. Got it. And then um, you're carrying food or whatever else is right, needed right. at the time. We went down a weird rabbit hole. Most people won't care about it, like the logistics of camping underground versus. I don't know. It's one of the earth, things but... that people ask me about the most when I oh, give really? talks about caving. Like they want to know. Like they want to understand the logistics. It. I, yeah, well, I guess I'm boring and I'm just going to rehash that. Like, I was just so. But the other thing I've been thinking about that I'm sure you've been asked a lot is like, do you think that um, growing up here is part of what impacted your life? I mean, because like I said, you've been into caving since I met you. Like, is that. It had a big impact. Yeah. I mean, the fact that there are lots of caves around here that most of them are relatively beginner friendly. So, um, you know, you don't have to have any rope and they aren't particularly cold. Um, you know, it, it gave me a lot of early caving experiences and, and yeah, I don't know, by the time I was 13 or 14, I was already totally hooked on caves. Yeah. And, um, it just took another 
decade or something to real or a little more than a decade for me to realize that that's what I should actually be doing with my life. Was yeah, what got you into astrophysics? Like that seems like I will say I was thinking about this before you came over. I was like, you know, it shouldn't be a shock that you end up you, right? Because I remember growing up and thinking your dad was like possibly one of the smartest human being I had ever met. He may have been making it all up, but I was going to be like, okay, like this guy, <laughs> see like the triple point of water. I'm like, I don't, all right. <laughs> you know, like I just remember that like, um, and he would do goofy stuff. Like I can show you how one doesn't equal or one plus one doesn't equal two. And he'd yeah, do this like yeah. crazy. Yeah. I may have that napkin somewhere still actually, but like yeah, what gets you into astrophysics? Like what shoots that um, off? It's, it's kind of a, I don't know, the way I explain it is it was the most obvious choice. At each, like at each point where I came to a fork. Literally nobody ever said that about astrophysics. I took the most, like the clearest path forward. And so, so this started for me. Here's in, the opposite map from everybody else on the planet. In, in nobody ends up an astrophysicist. <laughs> well, okay. So I'll, I'll explain the sequence. So, so I started as an undergrad. I had pretty broad interests. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I pursued dual degrees in physics and philosophy. Right. Um, and I figured that covered like a wide range of things. It covers what I think of when I think of you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, it was, you know, it, it, it was what I was, it was what I was interested in. At the time. Yeah. Um, and I was certainly interested in caves as well, but I hadn't, I hadn't really gotten interested in the science of caves at that point. And, um, you know, I thought about pursuing geology as an undergrad, but I, I had the impression that it was a really qualitative science and really just mostly descriptive. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and while there are aspects of that to geology, there is also like, there's actually a really a need for people with math skills to, to work in geology. And I wasn't really aware of that. And anyway, so physics and philosophy, um, I, I did undergraduate research projects in both fields, physics and philosophy, wrote a th two theses. Um, and if I had just done what I liked the most, I might have ended up a philosopher. Uh, I think I enjoyed that thesis more than the physics one. But I like, I mean, I liked them both. Right. And I was sort of looking at, okay, I can go this route of physics. I want to go to grad school. Do I do physics or philosophy? Well, what do I do with a philosophy degree? Working uh, in a coffee shop. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, McDonald's was more what I had in mind. But, right, right. But but coffee shop is maybe McDonald's a, does have happy. It's probably so. a better option for a philosopher. <laughs> um it's it's like it just didn't it seemed like my opportunities were not going to be that great, or that it was going to be a real struggle to right. to really get to work in that field. And physics, on the other hand, seemed like there are a lot of things I could do with that. So I went physics. And when I went into physics, I was first interested in particle theory, like string theory and all that yeah. really cool stuff that people talk about. And, um, but then when I went around the physics department looking for an advisor to work, you know, in a PhD project, I talked to all the particle physicists and most of them seemed kind of depressed and kind of like trying to push people away from the fields. Like there are too many people and like too many students want to do this. Um, they should have studied and, philosophy instead. And this is, yeah. <laughs> and this is a field that's basically populated by geniuses. Right. So, um, nice humble brag. I like that. Continue. No, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't in the field. I was not in the field yet. You were looking to get so, in the field though. Oh yeah. You know, I, I had an ego anyway, <laughs> but, uh, so 
one of the professors explained it this way. It's like, okay, if you're going to work in this field and you're not a genius, was I was not. Um, you got to find some sort of problem that's like important for some reason, but people aren't really all that excited about it. So there's really no one else working on it. Because if you work on the really hot problems that everyone's excited about, then, you know, like you'll pound your head against the problem for a year or two. And then um, Ed Witten, who's one of the top theoretical physicists right now, he'll come in into the room and, and think about it and figure it out in 10 minutes. And, and then you're out of a job. You got to like move on to the next problem. Um, and, and not only this, but if you go into this field, almost no one gets a job in this field. So you need to have a backup plan. A lot of people go work on wall street, crunching numbers. Oh. And so when this just didn't sound like an attractive yeah, option no. to me. And I went and talked to astrophysicists and they're like, oh, it's a really exciting time right now. There's all this data, all these things we don't understand. The, the data is way out in front of the theory. And so there's, as a theorist, there's all kinds of things to try to understand. And um, it's like, okay, I'll do astrophysics. I watched that documentary on the black hole. Like ma like taking an image of the black hole with the I'm sure you know what I'm talking I, about. I know that I, I haven't seen it, but super fascinating, right? Like, the, like I am not near smart enough to understand it, but I I for a variety of weird reasons went down the Richard Feynman path, right? Like just reading all his stuff and kind uh -huh. of trying to learn. And so like I have enough working knowledge to kind of like sort of understand if you make whatever. But um, yeah, astrophysics just like. Because that would be astrophysics, right? Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> so it's like, and you know, it's a field that's that's really pretty exciting. Yeah, and it's like it's something that I thought I should be really interested in, and I was interested in it at sort of the popular science level. And it was, you know, I had a, it was interesting the PhD work I did. I enjoyed right. it, but I just wasn't that passionate about it. And as I was finishing that up, um, I came to this realization that I could do science that was studying caves. But using my toolkit from physics, basically math, right, um, and, and applying that to studying caves, and I realized there are actually a handful of, of people who are doing this already, who are yeah. trained as physicists but studying caves. And once I made that connection, it was like, oh, this is what I should be doing. And so it's just this happy accident, right? Like you've gotten all of this education and understanding and experience that then meets a childhood passion and boom. And you're like, Oh, perfect. Like yeah. this works. Yeah. And then, then amazingly it actually worked. I mean, it, it was a scary thing to, to finish a PhD in astrophysics and then jump to geology. Yeah. With no training in geology with a plan to try to become a geology professor. Yeah. And do you meet people in that field initially? And you're like, Hey, I'm from the astrophysics department. They're like, uh, yeah, get out of here. You're not a rock boy. You know, like, I mean, we're rock stars. Yeah. Like, there, there was, well, were they, they pretty welcoming? In they that? were very welcoming. So I mean, part, there were only five other guys. Part, so, but, part of that was <laughs> part of, part of that is there is really a need for people with, with quantitative skills in the field of geology. Right. Um, and so there was a bit of a vacuum that I could, could help fill. That's really and, cool. And um, that made it quite a bit easier. Um, and then basically I spent four years as a researcher in the field and that and got some publications out and so on. That gave me enough credibility that I could get a job as a geology professor, even though I have no degree or, or have only taken a handful of geology classes. It's the craziest. That, I'm really happy that this turned out for you because it's just like, 
literally read the article and I was like, yeah, that's Matt. Like that just made total sense in my head. Like, yep, that person should be doing that thing. (laughs) So, and it seems like you're really happy doing it. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a pretty amazing job. Yeah. Um, it, when I was making that transition, this was what you said kind of reminded me of this. Um, I was dreading having to tell my parents, like, you know, it's like, I'm throwing away this education in physics and I'm going to go totally jump fields. And when I, when I told my parents that I was thinking about doing this, they kind of paused for a second. And then my mom's first thing she said was, Oh, I always thought you should have been a geologist. <laughs> You're like, where were you? When like, I was making decisions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, we let you do your own thing, but you finally figured it out. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> All right. So, I, I can't thank you enough for coming and hanging out with me. I, I like to, like, at the end of every show, and I know you've only listened to bits and parts, so maybe you aren't ready for this yet, but I'm going to start a sentence, and you finish it with whatever comes to mind. Okay. All right. I'm a slow thinker. I wish I could. Go to Mars. Well. Do you really wish you could go to Mars like for a day or is one of like the first colonizers forever? If I didn't have a wife and kids, the the question would, the answer would be clear. Some people would say because of my wife and kids, I would go to Mars. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If like without family, uh, you would actually go to Mars, like one way trip. I'm going to colonize. Let's go. Yeah. You do have a personality to be underground for a week. I, I, I could not do that. I'd be like, nope, not going to happen. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I, my, my wife has forbidden space. Space, okay. space is not allowed. Even if we find caves on Mars, there have to be caves on there, Mars. And most likely, like, that, that's the best place to set up a habitat. So there's a lot of study of caves on Mars to try to yeah. figure out, like, what's, what's, and, or to find life. If you get there quickly, you can be the first deep cave on Mars pretty easily. So yeah. I think, yeah. Like, there are volcanic caves on Mars and, and oh. as well as the tallest volcano in the solar system. So the, probably the deepest caves in the solar system might be on Mars, but I'll, I'll never get that opportunity, I don't think. Well, keep wishing. <laughs> Upon a star, you astrophysicist. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, thank Super you. Super fun. I could talk about this for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Look What I Did is produced by Aaron Dotson and Daniel Quinn. Sound designed by Daniel Quinn. Our digital director is Heather Hill.